Wan Smoke, Broken. Chapter 7, Wan Smoke Part 1. Prior to Gotrik's conquest, King Ogier's Fey Massacre and the spread of the Union faith, the great city of Sinek was once known as Cliffborough. Though still the most populous in all of Sealand, we were only a small fishing village then. That was before we discovered the copper in our veins, before the invention of the Death Wand, before we understood the nature of transmogrification. Back then, there ruled no marshal, no treasurer, no steward, no king, only a lone black cat cast astray from the mainland. Cat Sith was the name of that massive fey beast who devoured men's souls and any boat sent by the Queen of the Fairies, at least until Gotrik's conquest reached the village of Cliffborough, until his son, King Ogier, imposed his new system of governance, after which the fey Cat Sith was never heard from again. From that, Cynic as we know it was born. Bridges were built over the river canyon, connecting the south side to the north. Subterranean resources were discovered, dams were constructed, steam engines innovated, as was the Death Wand, of course, all done on the backs of gremlin slave labor under my command. I, Councilman Bradwer, saw to it that the city expanded. Unfortunately, so too spread mainland contamination. From the official history of our great city, available to read for free at the North Cynic Propaganda Library. I awakened to a splitting headache and the emptiest stomach I've had since the early days of my exile into the outer cove of Oldholm, a decade before the place was ever known as the Vault of the Black Flame. Flame. The word brings back fuzzy patches of memories, a fight inside the church, an explosive transmutation, lightning. I blink, trying to make the images clearer in my mind, then I realize that means my eyes are open, open yet blind. My left hand flies on instinct to check if the eye of Amjean is still in my head. It is, but nonetheless, I regret it. As soon as my fingers touch my face, it's like a circuit connects and a jolting pain jumps from my right brain to the left and into the frayed nerves in my hand, and all the way to my elbow goes numb with cold and needles. It takes a full minute for the pain to fade. The whole time I'm waiting, expecting the old King Ogier to say something sarcastic, but it doesn't happen. There's only peace and quiet and stillness on the surface of the lake that is the image of my soul, my spirit glimmering beneath. Once the pain abates, I try to gain my feet. It's difficult on the boat, ever rocking with the flow of the river deep and my legs like jelly after two days of being made to stand with no sleep inside the tiny gibbet cages. It takes a moment, but eventually my heels find the deck, and with my body seated on a bench and leaned upright against what must be the bow or the stern, I give myself a feeble push, not strong enough to lift myself, not with this extra weight now squirming awake and pinning down my lap and chest. You're awake, Broken shouts, and at the sound of her voice my migraine surges, then dissipates, all in the second it takes for my vision to return, first in shades of grey, then in discernible objects slowly blooming with colour like flowers budding in spring. It's beautiful, really, the interior of this canvas-covered trade boat, everything stained and sanded wood, a little worn, but that only gives it more character. I could say the same for the girl as well. She's changed all into her new clothes, burgundy boots and dress under her cloak and her new marigold-style flat puffy cap. And for once, her bandages look clean, though behind them, her eyes seem sad. Are you all right? I ask, recalling now the death wand shot and twang of a crossbow. You're not hurt, are you? She turns her head away from me, looks down at something pale and round she's holding in her lap. I'm fine, she answers, turning the object over, 
gently caressing it like a wounded animal. I crane my neck and discover that it's Gerard, what's left of him anyway. I'm sorry, I start. She stops me. No, it's all right. I'm lucky to still have his head so I can still ask him for advice. Gerard talks? Only to me, but it's a secret so don't tell anybody except Verva. I already told her about it. Broken stands, stows the giant slayer's skull in her doe-skin satchel and stares ahead where the canvas opens toward the few wet stairs leading up to the mid-deck, and bow. We're almost there. I can see the light from the Crystal Palace. I try again and manage to stand unsteadily. I brace myself with my right hand on some crates of cargo and stand next to the girl. Just over the stairs, in the strip of sky visible under the end of the canvas, I see it too. Against a ribbon of gray overcast, there's a glimmer of white light and the hint of rainbow reflections of glass higher in the sky than even the tallest tower of the Union Church. I'm about to ask Broken to help me hobble on deck to witness more of it when my stomach growls. The girl hears and, strangely excited, jumps onto the bench on which I'd been resting and reaches into one of several stacked crates. She pulls out a headless trout reeking of vinegar and onions. We've got more pickled fish than we could ever eat. Try one, she says, smiling wider than is natural. I might be more skeptical if I wasn't so starved, but I am. So with only my right hand, I take the fish, give it a sniff, and ask, does it taste better than it stinks? Broken nods, biting her lips. I bite the fish, and with a mouthful of vinegary flesh, screw up my face and muffle out, this is awful. I know! The girl bursts full of laughter, unable to stop guffawing, watching my expression sour. I finish the fish regardless and ask for another. Happily, she hands one over, and only after I've eaten it do I think that perhaps the owner might protest us consuming his cargo. So I ask Broken where the boatman is, and she says without a single speck of remorse, Him? He's probably dead in the canals outside Marigold. He broke out of Verva's spell and didn't like it that the church was after us, so Nastias shot him in the back. She points a pretend crossbow, and with her voice replicates the metallic twang. Then he kicked him off with his big old boots, so now all the pickled fish is ours. We're pirates. Privateers, Grant corrects her, treading the wet steps and ducking under the canvas cover, his death wand tucked safely under his coat. He looks something of a chimera, equally weary as perturbed. Even shadowed, his back to the light, the purple crescent moon show beneath his eyes, as do the wrinkles between his brow and across his forehead. He says in a tone hard and seething as a hot iron, Our seizure of this vessel was entirely legitimate. It's been marked with a lien, so it's officially city property. And given that the governing council of Marigold proved themselves to be nothing but traitorous sycophants for the Union Church. He accents the word like he's chomped on some pickled fish. Rebel church, more like, or zealot usurpers. Commandeering a boat was a fair and proportional response. What they did was an act of war. By their own laws, they had no right to arrest you or Ashland. It was all done on the church's authority, which legally they don't possess. But they've all but dissolved the constabulary, if it can even be called such without a standing constable. Broken aims her imaginary crossbow at Grant and looses a quarrel. Twang, she says, then before he can continue his rant. So are we there yet, Deputy Grant? I want to shoot that Dr. Edgar in the face. Kaboom! Her pretend bow explodes like a death wand, and she chuckles, but the constable doesn't find it so funny. I'm Constable Grant, not a deputy anymore, and we're not going to Glassboro, at least not yet. But we have to save Roslyn! 
I rise out of my seat and take Broken by the hand, lead her down off the bench and hold her next to me till she calms down a bit. So what's the plan then? I ask. After talking with Nastius about what happened in Marigold, we've concluded that we don't possess the necessary numbers or equipment to take Edgar by force. Verva might be able to get us inside, but if one of these gangsters breaks free from her spell like the fish merchant did, we'll be shot down for a certainty. About the boatman, I begin, not knowing exactly how to approach my question. Broken said Nostius shot him, and I vaguely remember a wand blast as well. Affirmative. The fish merchant tried to halt our vessel, so Nostius dispatched him as an enemy combatant. The other shot you heard was mine. The deputy in the guard box was going to raise the chain. I stare Grant dead in the face the whole time he's talking, and near the end I catch his eyes, hold them with my own. For once he looks back into mine as I ask him, And you're all right with all that? Shooting a man in the back and another at his post? We are on an official manhunt. These people were obstructing justice and acting as insurgents against the old king's laws. He says it flatly, dispassionate, but I can still see the wrinkles between his eyebrows can still feel the rage radiating like flames beneath the surface. But then he catches me off guard, asking, Would you have done anything differently? I look down at Broken and think of the promise I'd made and the risks I'd taken, inviting Ogier into the black lake inside where the eye rests underneath the surface of the waters. Strange that the evil old king is being so quiet. Maybe his spirit had to rest after throwing that lightning bolt. Looking back at Grant, I squeeze my left hand and answer, Not a damn thing. Southwest and west of Glassboro, on the furthest reaches of the river deep, where the river mouth empties into the ocean tides, the strange city of Cynic rises from the coastline. It's not often I'm made to think about the name of our country, Sealand, or of what that name implies. Yet gazing upon the odd silhouettes of pale, pink, and beige, each rotunda piled atop one another. The rooftops were visible, showing bright red shingles. And behind it, the horizon line stretches forever, steel blue and steel gray. The fact that we're an island nation drifts to the forefront of consciousness. For as different as Berg is from South is from Marigold is from Glassboro. None of it compares to Cynic's foreign contamination. We encounter the first mainlanders upon reaching the dam. A feat of gremlin engineering, and the only way inside the city by boat. They're sailing in from the opposite direction on a ship too big to fit even the deepest, widest cuts of the river. The shape of it reminds me of a pregnant woman, the tall, broad stern larger than the rest, the width swelling at the center, then tapering again toward the elevated bow. I'd say she's a cargo vessel, if I had to guess, built for ocean voyages via three huge sails, each the color of cream, the hull painted in pastels, subtle shades of orange and pink like a sunset. The five of us together crowd at the front of our commandeered boat to catch a glimpse of the foreigners as their ship circles us inside the river canyon. We have to crane our necks, and even then, all that is visible is the pastel hull and the eroded cliff faces rising on either side. Atop these cliffs is the city itself, divided by the deep into northern and southern sections connected by a web of bridges overhead. Those crossways would cast the canyon in darkness but for the humongous lanterns hanging from them, swaying like gibbet cages in the Union Church dungeon, sometimes with the wind, other times with the boom of sudden thunder. 
Death wands, Grant comments, glancing between the pastel ship and the bridges above, anxious. I pat him on the shoulder and he startles for a second before regaining his composure. Why so jumpy? After all, that's why we've come, isn't it? I feel a tug at my cloak sleeve. Kanti, can I buy a wand when we get into the city? Do you have enough money? She reaches into her pockets and counts out what's left of her inheritance. I've got three gold and fifteen silver, is that enough? I don't know. We'll have to see once we get inside. I look to Grant. How do we get up there anyway? It's Nostius who answers. I told you, it's the dam. But all that's here are rocks and ocean, I say. Yet not a moment later do I feel the quaking of the cliff faces and hear the roar of hidden engines and the grinding of gears. Ahead of us, where the mouth of the river deep vomits white into the sea, the canyon walls berth a pair of green copper gates. Their meeting shakes even the boats on the water, and I'm terrified we'll capsize between the cascade of waves in front and the river's rush from behind. It knocks all of us on our asses and would have thrown broken from the boat had Verva not grabbed her. Then it's over. The boat stays upright and we climb from our prone positions, sodden and shivering and slowly rising with the flooding of the river canyon. There's your dam, chatters Nostius, soaked and shivering yet smiling all the while at the technological marvel as if he was back in time. Once again a kid awestruck at the operation and design of his fellow gin runner's flintlock wands. Extra excited apothecary aside, the rest of us take refuge from the wind under the canvas cover for the 15 minutes it takes the river to level out. None of us talk. We're too shocked by what we saw and too cold to do anything but huddle for warmth. Near the end I take stock of what was lost in the tumult. My pockets are soaked, meaning the last black flame satchel I brought is now useless. Likely Grant's powder is in the same condition. Our books and bandages should be safe in our packs, though. They're stashed under Broken's extra clothes. Those will need to be dried, but at least they're not ruined, or missing like the girl's staff seems to be. No dragon lance coming to my rescue today. At least her bayonet is safely in its sheath. The water crests. We've reached two-thirds the height of the city where an opening in the southern cliff face forms an artificial grotto. As it fills with the flowing river, a current catches our boat as well as six cargo skiffs from the deck of the foreigner's ship. We're pulled into the cove and there's another engine roar. A second, smaller pair of gates closes behind us. We've arrived at Cynic's undercity port. Just like beneath the bridges, enormous lanterns hang from the ceiling like miniature suns on copper chains. Their light shines golden yellow and soft, illuminating the docks that, if I hadn't seen the actual city from a distance, I might have mistaken for Cynic itself. The pier and wharf and stone buildings behind are enough to be a village all by themselves, let alone the crowd packed in the cavernous streets. I see rope tossers and cargo haulers, street sweeps and muckrakers cleaning gutters and drains, and even above there are men attending the lanterns, cleaning the glass and oiling the basins. I imagine there must be a whole team working the gates as well. There's got to be more people just in this port than live in South. Only something is off about them. Every dozen or so seems a normal man, but the rest of them are too short by half. It's not until our boat drifts close enough to dock and one of the small ones throws us a rope that I recognize he's no man at all. They're gremlins, the lot of them. Furry little monstrosities, though these ones aren't like what Broken and I spent company with in the dungeons. 
These gremlins have been bound and broken for a life of slavery. Their cat-like ears have been entirely sheared off, their eyes sewn nearly shut, their teeth knocked out, and their fingers cut down from claws to opposable stubs. Grant and Nostius catch the thrown rope, and with help from the gremlin, we moor the boat. Our sodden boots patter the pier like rain on a rooftop, damp, dreary, and dismal despite the warmer air inside the cliff cavern port. Still we're shivering, huddled for warmth. Me, Broken, and Verva. The other two are trying to figure out the fee for docking, but it seems the gremlin has no language to speak of. Or with, for that matter. The nasty little thing just looks at them, confused and scared, every so often glancing over its bony shoulders. After the third time asking, Grant tries forcing a few silver pieces into the gremlin's hands, and it's as though the monster is paralyzed by the metal, like a hob might be. Slowly the gremlin closes his hand, shakes his mutilated head, and motions to return the money. Then, before the constable can take it back, an explosion echoes double loud inside the cavern. The gremlin's body jerks. It drops the coins and clutches at its chest, though no wounds are obvious, not until it collapses to its knees and bows over in pain. It's been shot in the back by a large boar death wand, the hole as big as the silver now scattered at Grant's feet. Broken grabs at the breast of her cloak, physical emulation the only way she can process the seemingly random violence till Verva steps in front of the girl and envelops her in the folds of her robe. Then the tears come, muffled among the cloth yet nonetheless audible in the silence that's fallen in response to the shot. As audible as are a pair of footfalls, these belonging to a real human man. Our weapons are drawn before we even look to see him, Nostius's and my own. The alchemist is pulling a quarrel from his quiver when the sniper arrives, shoving aside the gremlins in his path. The man is young, no older than any of us, though by the way he carries himself you would think he was a city official. He's wearing a bright orange vest over a blue quilted jack, his pants and boots the same color, and all of it covered in brass buckles with supple leather straps. And in his hand, a double-barreled death wand, two triggers, two hammers, two brass caps in place of striking pans, one spent, the other readied as the man cocks his wand, calling out to us, No need to soil your shoes, friends. I'll take care of it. I look to Nastius, he looks to me, and neither of us disarm as we watch the stranger strut to where the gremlin is hunched, dying. I swear, these little bugbears are getting dumber by the month trying to cheat visitors to our glorious cynic. Humph! The man puffs air through his nostrils, glares down and shouts, Come on then, you transmogrified piece of trash! Return what you stole from this fine official! The gremlin lets out a weak cry and crawls toward the silver pieces, struggles, but manages to pick them up with the dexterity left in its thick, nub fingers. In cupped hands, it offers the money to Grant. I feel sick watching the constable take back the payment. I wish someone would just put this poor thing out of its misery. Not a second passes before I regret thinking that. The man places his wand on the back of the gremlin's head, pulls the trigger, and blasts it dead on the pier. Black blood spatters Grant's boots. I sheathe Ogier's sword. Nostius removes his bolt. The other gremlin slaves all get back to work, as if one of their own had not just been murdered. Welcome, the orange-vested taskmaster announces with glee. My apologies for dirtying your boots after all, but the shoe shiners should be able to get those spots out once you're up top. What about the docking fee? The constable asks. 
The man retrieves a powder horn from his belt and begins reloading his civic issue wand. City of Cynic, the barrel reads, followed by the name Enforcer. He looks up from his task with a single raised brow, answers, Fee, ah, uh, you must be newcomers. Docking is free and cynic, so is the shoe shining. Don't let these little bugbears convince you otherwise, or they'll swindle out of you whatever they can get. He glances the rest of us over, then goes back to studying Grant. Forgive me for not recognizing your office. I haven't seen that style coat before. I'm guessing you're part of the Berg Constabulary? I'm the Constable and Marshal from Township South, not Berg. And these are my militiamen. We're on an official manhunt for someone who's taken refuge in the city of Glassboro. Ah, so you've come to make a purchase. Grant's eyes go big as a flattened leaden slug. Who told you? Was it an official from Marigold? The only thing from Marigold that comes this far down river are slaves, Mr. Constable. No one told me. It's just that there's only one reason anyone visits Cynic. Even those from all the way across the Queen's Channel. The taskmaster nods toward the crew departing their cargo boats. They're women, mostly, three for every single man. And had I not seen them all arrive on the same vessels, I would think they hailed from entirely different lands. The women, every last one I can see, seem identical under shapeless layers of lavender clothing, their faces and hair mostly hidden behind hoods. The men are just the opposite. Each and every one is dressed distinctly from the others, Bright silks the color and sheen of various gemstones, though they share in common a fondness for showing off their physiques, some even going so far as to leave uncovered their chests or shoulders or abdomens, showing skin-baked beige in the sun, rippled with muscles and shaved naked as their clean, beardless chins. Makes me shiver ever the more just looking at them, but I suppose the hair atop their heads grows enough to make up for it. Some of them even had manes as long as that marigold shield maidens. You should keep your distance from them, at least until you pick up a couple wands, says the taskmaster, holstering his own weapon. He glances us over again and winces at our sodden condition. But before I can send you to North Cynic in good conscience, you should rest and groom for the evening. You don't want to accidentally offend anyone, he cracks a smile. Not without the proper weapons. Wet, shivering, and traumatized after two encounters now, where we went against the local norms, we're eager to abide by the taskmaster's suggestion. He even offers to escort us to an inn made for foreign visitors named The Way House, where newcomers can learn how not to get murdered, at least not out of ignorance. And so, leaving behind the gremlin corpse to be cleaned up by others of his kind, we follow our guide through hordes of slaves, wading our way past the wharf and into the undercity housing. It's a gremlin ghetto, the man explains, one of two, the other lying hidden beneath North Cynic. The factory, they call that one. This one's the grotto. So you won't need to worry about getting swindled again once you're up top. We're very strict about where and when the little bugbears are allowed to roam, and only the most well-behaved are let above ground to work. We listen and keep silent as we follow the taskmaster past stacked stone apartments that up close look more like cubbies burrowed into the rock and filled with filthy straw and the stench of unwashed bodies. And to think I used to believe the vault was a place of squalor. It's a paradise compared to this refuse heap from which I'd happily be distracted. Fortunately for me, this city's got no shortage of marvels. The most impressive at present is our means to the surface. 
It's a massive, winch-powered, chain-elevated stage made from a material I don't recognize, nor does Nostius by the curious looks he's giving it. It sounds hollow to the step. Resilient with a hint of elasticity like resin, only harder like glass in its color, a faint translucent orange. Our guide catches us gawking as we load onto the platform. I swear I've never known anyone to enjoy talking so much. He explains, It's crystal amber tapped from the heart trees of Kind Grove and gifted to us directly from the Queen in exchange for a battery of wooden death engines. He knocks it with his heel and gestures toward the power source. A dozen gremlins stationed at either side and pumping foot pedals that spin chains that turn gears that rotate cogs, then the winches themselves. Amazing substance. Light and tough, and if molded into the right shape, it can be made hollow. Without it, we'd need triple the labor just to operate the lift. I can't imagine how tiring it must have been for the old taskmasters, wearing out their shoulders driving the little bugbears up the old switchbacks, and with cargo. It must have taken all day. I'm sure it was worse for the gremlins, speaks Virva with a chill in her voice that has nothing to do with the damp and the cold. The young taskmaster just looks at her, confused, till he's rescued by a slew of foreigners. Two men loading crates and barrels onto the platform, and six women, one of whom utters from under her lavender hood, Good sister, I hear your compassion and extend my heart to you. We have all felt it upon our first arrival on the Isle of Men. They feel so much like children to look upon these small hobs, so unlike the tusked bugbears that fester among the menfolk of home. But that's just what they are, men who refuse to shed their brutish nature and become one of the fair folk. Virva stares at her, not sure how to respond to such a steady stream of obvious nonsense, probably the first time she's been on the other end of it. Broken, on the other hand, has had more than enough experience dealing with long-winded charlatans. She looks up at the woman and without hesitating says, You have no clue what you're talking about, lady. The robed woman declines to reply till I chastise the girl for speaking rudely when we don't know what might get us imprisoned or even killed. At my harsh tone of voice, the woman gasps, and one of the men steps forward. The sounds of his feet make a hollow clopping on the amber. I can't help but glance down and notice the furry shins and cloven hooves. You're fucking elves, I blurt out. Broken spins around and shouts, no fair! The foreign elf draws a long, bronze, leaf-shaped dagger from a sheath between his legs. He points it about an inch from my face. Apologize for your violent tongue, savage, or on my lady's honor I'll cut it out. Violent, I think, on the verge of asking this freak what he's talking about when the taskmaster sticks his death wand between us. Your people know the rules. No dueling in the Undercity. Put up your weapon now, he exclaims, cocks the left side hammer, or else by my authority I'll blow your head clean off. A man overseeing the gremlins working the lift sees this and draws his own civic-issue wand, single-barreled but the same style as his superiors. He calls out to his compatriot, I stand beneath you, brother, and aims at the back of the elf's fuming head. Literally, in the cold, the foreigner's face burns so hot with rage that the air pales like a veil around it. Begrudgingly, he sheathes his dagger, staring fiery-eyed into my face, glistening lilac eyes, crying. I'm embarrassed watching him weep in frustration while the women console him like an overgrown child. At least the taskmaster and overseer holster their weapons. Finally, we can get on our way. It takes 10,000 gremlin pedals to power us to the surface. That's what our guide claims, anyway. 
once the foreigners are gone and we're off the platform roaming the city streets. He speaks cordially, as if just moments ago he wasn't a finger twitch away from splattering a man's head all over his friends. Seeing the buildings and alleys as we walk, it starts to make more and more sense to me. We're deep within Cynic where the lift surfaces, and all around is like a tightly packed township south. Two floors of masonry overhung by two more stories of wattle and daub. In every window and doorway and on every corner is at least one young, well-armed man wearing clothes that seem more expensive than brokens, vibrant colors in sharp contrast with the state of the surrounding architecture. At the sounds of our feet scuffing the blood-stained brick pavement, each man caresses the grip of his weapon, ready, eyes wild, daring any one of us to meet his stare. Then we pass, and one after another they sink back into their comfortable impoverishment, not so different from subsisting on mushrooms and fantasizing about the grandeur of power. They're the Immaculate, the Taskmaster tells us of the young men yet to find rank in the civil service. Without employment, they cannot afford apartments in North Cynic. So, for as long as anyone can remember, the city council has granted them housing in Old Town Center. It's safe to travel through, so long as you don't offend anyone, but to be secure, I recommend you keep toward Bridge Street and the Wayhouse till tomorrow morning. The Immaculate don't wake early, so you should be able to make it to the Northern Trade Quarter without any trouble. About this Wayhouse, asks Grant, noticing the building's transition from familiar timber and whitewash to the round, staggered pastel towers that we saw from the river. How much is it going to cost for us to board for a night? Clearly he's wary after what we paid in Marigold. And looking around, I can't blame him. It doesn't bode well. The closer we approach the canyon, the more extravagant our surroundings become. The streets here are free of dust, dirt, stains, or snow. On the homes are murals of poppy fields and luminescent forests. The people themselves are draped in perfume and jewels. Amber, jade, and moonstone, jasmine and lavender. Cost? You northerners pay for everything, don't you? Board is free for visitors at the Wayhouse. That is, so long as a man of the civil service is willing to vouch for you and your business within the city. And you would vouch for us? Grant questions the man with open skepticism. Why? The taskmaster looks the constable's coat up and down, then to Nastius's crossbow, then to Ogier's sword. Well, just look at you. Your old model wand is twenty years beneath your station, and I mean no insult when I say this, fellows, but the rest of your kit are all antiques. I haven't heard of a serious man carrying a crossbow since my ma was a little girl, and a sword, a sword. He gestures with both hands extended, his palms upturned like a marigolder does when something goes wrong and he takes his patriarch's name in vain. I don't know who you're planning on skewering with that old thing, but at least get a rod model one so you're not dead sixteen paces out. I can hold my own just fine, I start. Grant waves me down and speaks over the apothecary, grumbling about how these cynic idiots must never have hunted a hob or fay in their lives. That's not what I meant. Allow me to clarify. I'm curious why you in particular would voluntarily risk your personal honor, especially for a band of outside strangers. Isn't it obvious? I want to serve as an escort one day. Broken's arm shoots up and she waggles her hand. Is that why you talk so much about all this stuff? The man smiles as though the girl's insult were a compliment. Yes, I have to practice somehow. The city won't hire a man for the job without experience. He peeks at the sun, slowly abandoning the east. And now that I've told you, 
You have me by the balls, so to speak. I've got to get back before an overseer notices I'm gone, but when you arrive at the Wayhouse, I'd be grateful if you let them know who got you safely through Old Town Center. Tell them it was Enforcer Logan. We pass along the name like currency shortly after arriving at the three-story inn and tavern and bathhouse and cultural center, whatever that is. The woman working the front counter logs it in a book. Then it's hot meals, warm hearths, and clean feather beds the rest of the evening, and Verva lamenting over that gremlin roper murdered at the port. Until this, she's been quiet ever since Marigold. I never asked her much about what happened to the mystics. Likely they were persecuted the same as we were, but I'm not about to inquire about that now. She seems more concerned with Broken anyhow, though the girl looks fine to me. A bit shaken maybe, but I don't doubt she can handle just about anything. That doesn't stop the mystic from whinging on and on. No, that takes a shrug from Nastius and from Grant a stone cold. The law is the law. What do I think? I think I'm going to pass out on a pile of pillows. Come morning, breakfast is served on demand. Anything we want. So I let the girl place our old order from the Hellgates to the new lady clerk just finishing her night shift. Broken and myself fell asleep earlier than the others, so we're the only ones eating in the common room when she capers over to check on us. She's young, as young as everybody has seemed so far this side of the city, and just like the taskmaster, she's wearing a bright orange vest over her slashed, layered dress, each depth a different color of the rainbow. Her face is colored as well, painted even, too smooth and perfect like a porcelain doll. Has everything been wonderful? She asks us. I swallow a mouthful of eggs and fried dough and reply, Yeah, actually I kind of wish we could stay a few more days, it's been great. Not bad, Broken says, but the woman doesn't seem to hear her and leans closer to my face. She whispers, And you haven't seen any little bugbears about, have you? They've kept out of sight. Gremlins, you mean. Now that she mentions it, no. I don't recalling seeing any despite the absence of human workers and the cleanliness of the rooms, the sheets, the dishes, and the sudden preparation of the food. But I'm having a hard time focusing on all that right now. The woman's rainbow corset is cut low at the chest, and with her loomed over the way she is, there's not much else in my field of vision but the cream-white curves of her breasts pressed together. Uh, no, I don't think I've seen any. Broken blurts out, I saw one wiping the tables when we came in this morning. Fantastic, the painted lady announces, wearing a counterfeit smile as if the girl never answered. Then with a finger, she strokes the brand on my forehead. I'm always happy to serve tough-looking men like you. Not many northerners are bold enough to tattoo their faces. I'm Morvan, by the way. Clerk Morvan from West Crossing. I'm, um, my name is Canty. And I am Broken, Master Mystic and Seer to the Lord of Black Flame, she announces, retrieving Gerard's skull from her doeskin satchel. Cross me and you'll end up like this miserable fool, Morvan gasps as though she only now noticed the girl, turns, and at once falls to fawning over her. She is so adorable. Is this your daughter? That's what the papers say. At last she speaks directly to Broken, but by the girl's evil-eyeing I'm worried she might get stabbed. The woman doesn't seem to notice, though. She compliments her dress and cloak. And your cap is so cute and just ties it all together. Where did you get it? Marigold, I answer for her. Morvan's rosy disposition slips in an instant, but only for an instant before she replaces it like a mask, her face a facade. Is that where you're from? She asks us, taking second glances at my white trog eye and that of Amjean, then to the girl's bandaged body. No, 
We're from the last settlement south of the Hellgates mountain range, just before the Miasma. It's a ways southeast from the city of Berg. Why, does that make you nervous? I add at the end. I don't like the way she keeps glancing back and forth like we might suddenly turn into a couple of ogres. Oh no, no, of course not. I'm just... I've never met another Sealander from somewhere so far from Cynic in person before. It's always tourists from Glassboro or slave traders from Marigold or else foreigners, Neverlanders or Skraling. But merchants from Berg can always afford boarding in North Cynic. Must be a lot of riches up there, though I've heard rumors that it's dangerous land as well. That there's lots of hobs, especially lately. I was just wondering if maybe... Maybe what? Maybe that's why she's all wrapped up and you're the way you are. I sigh and squeeze my left hand, feel the needling jolt as high as my shoulder and wish for the return of mindless distraction. All I conjure is disappointment instead. I guess this ghost won't leave me alone. Don't worry. I let her know that we're not kin to or cursed by Hobbes, nor Faye for that matter, that we're not anything but a couple of degenerates born of disease, bad breeding, and poor luck. Then I ask her, are you this timid around those foreign elves as well? Who? She asks. The first genuine use of intonation this conversation, though it doesn't last long. Oh, you mean the Neverlanders? No, they're hardly different from us. The men are more emotional than I like, and the women a bit uppity. Backbiting. Bitchy she says with a smile. But other than that, it's easy to forget that there's a whole ocean between us. Emotional is right. I recall how quickly that elf on the lift was willing to go to blows. And over what? Something I said, and not even to them. I stuff the last of my eggs into my mouth and stand from the table. Broken does the same. I say to the girl, let's go for a walk before dawn breaks. It'll be nice to get some fresh air. Then to the woman, you said your name is Morvan, right? She nods and hums a happy affirmation. Well, Morvan, here's a word of advice from an old soul. That ocean channel isn't big enough, and those elves are no less dangerous than the Hobbs, nor the Fae they come from. Maybe you were right to be afraid of us, but that just means you should stay clearer of them. We leave the clerk with that thought and abandon the common room to the sounds of deft hands and feet retrieving our plates. And how much more should we fear these gremlins? It does not elude me how much I sound like old King Ogier, prescribing my own fears onto others, seeing the danger in places I wouldn't have thought before to look. Part of me wonders if these are even my own thoughts, though I don't know who else's they could be. The King's been silent for some time now, or maybe I can't tell him apart from myself after pulling that stunt with the lightning. A scary thought, but it seems the most likely. Only it leaves one mystery unsolved. Ogier's soul was not alone in possession over my body, if indeed I could be said to have been possessed at all. It felt more like my old self growing into who I am now, and the king filling in the remaining space. But what does that mean? I give in trying to understand once we're across the street. Along the canyon, the roads wide enough to fit wagons doubled up both directions, though there are none out this early. The only traffic visible are gremlins mounted on mules pulling plows to clear the snow. A light layering of powder, fluffy as my pillow last night. There's a lone gremlin slaving away on Bridge Street and a whole team of them plowing perpendicular across the biggest of the bridges spanning the Cynic Divide. That's where Broken and I are headed. I'm curious to see the ocean with my own eyes from the vantage point at the peak of the bridge's arch. Unfortunately, we never make it past the copper statues flanking the entrance. 
From behind the greened likenesses of two of the three city founders creep a couple foreign elves with bronze daggers hanging from their belts. I recognize them as the pair we ran into down in the Undercity, and they recognize us. Savage starts the elf in front, the other strafing us around the side. You've shamed me with your violence and brutishness, his companion joins in, and you assaulted our fair women with the same. I draw Ogier's blade and Broken follows suit with her mithril bayonet. Violence? What the fuck are you talking about? I didn't even say anything to you. The elf presses a hand to his bare chest like I shot him with a wand. Strike me again, dare you? Are you hurt, brother? The other asks. The elf grimaces, wounded, but not beyond delivering my reproach. What is happening? I blurt aloud and feel a tug. Broken whispers in my ear. You hurt his feelings. Are you serious? I say a little too loudly. He points his bronze dagger at my face from twelve paces out. Our kind do not make such uncouth jests. We are beings of honor, of the kindness and compassion you so clearly lack. I can't stop myself from laughing. These idiots don't understand a thing they're saying. If only Ogier were talking. I'm sure he'd have a more poignant response than my unabashed guffaw. Savage, the elf's face goes dark. I've suffered your abuse long enough. I challenge you to a duel. I accept. Not a second after I say it, there's another tug at my sleeve. Wait, she says, looking at me like I am that gremlin who got shot in the back and the head. I pat the girl on her hat. I'll be fine, so don't worry. They don't have any death wands. I won't even need the black flame. Not that I have a satchel left. No, don't think about that. You'll be fine. Compared to ogres and abominations, these fools are nothing. Confident, I ask. So what are the rules? One against one, me and you, till we draw the first blood. Any interference and our seconds step in to break it up. And what happens to the loser? He suffers the shame of his defeat. Then I have nothing to lose, I think, squaring with the Neverlander. He's taller than me by at least a foot, but my weapon is longer, and I'm stronger for sure. I could probably cleave straight through that dagger like a pickaxe through a deposit of coal, with access to Ogier's wisdom, that is. If I'm right about the consequences of the last skirmish, I should still have it. Then why am I so scared? The time for contemplation is up. The elf lunges, and reflexively I cut backhand in a huge, unrefined arc. The mithril whistles through empty air while my opponent changes rhythm. He shuffle steps, hooves clogging the pavement before lunging forward again and pinning my sword arm with his free hand while simultaneously thrusting for my gut. It's dumb luck that as I spin away I step sideways out of range of the tip of the leaf blade. Turns out I was wrong about them, and I was wrong about myself. It's apparent these elves dwarf me in experience and skill. That I believed otherwise, that I could rely on my weapon, some external thing, was pure arrogance and laziness. And it shows. In how effortless it is for my opponent to pass my guard. In how incompetent I look, stumbling and swinging, hoping it's enough to keep us apart. In the background I hear Broken cheering me on, but no Ogier. It's just me alone, rushing for my opponent, hacking fast as I can in an attempt to overwhelm. Of course, none of that puts a scratch on the Neverlander. He slips the first slash, closes in, then spins shoulder to shoulder across my back and swipes my belly as we separate. 
There's no pain at first, just the shock of what happened and an earful of broken screams, of Ogier's sword clattering on the brick pavement while I'm clutching my stomach, hot blood steaming, spilling onto my cloak, my hands, the ground. I'm stagger, woozy, the pain waxing, my vision waning, my head spins as color bleeds itself from the world. The elf who cut me spits on the bricks, his face gray and grimacing, disgusted he turns away. And that's the last I see of him or his companion. Because then I blink for a long time, and when I wake, I'm on the ground with all my friends around me. Kanti, Broken is telling me not to die. Or is that Verva? My eyes are still blind, and the pain makes it impossible to move. Kanti, listen to me. You're going to be all right. A pinprick of light shines within the eye of Amjean. I see the mystic's face, her lips moving slowly, carefully enunciating each phrase. The pain is lessening now. Your heart is calming down. Your friends are helping you, treating your wound. You're going to be fine. Verva talks me through sitting upright while Broken and Nastia strip off my cloak. They wrap my abdomen in some of the girl's bandages. I know they're hers because of the sting of medicinal oil contaminating the wound. The pain allows me to feel the shape, like a slight frown stretched across my waist. Makes me think. Had that dagger been thinner, sharper steel, or had I not been wearing a leather cloak, I'd be dead right now, I'm pretty sure. That weighs on me as I struggle to my feet, nauseous and broken on either side to keep me from collapsing. Then Grant storms over, disgust conspicuous on his face as the elf's as he questions what I was doing wandering around by myself at night. I wasn't alone, and it was already morning by the time of the duel, but I don't bother correcting him. It doesn't make it any less my fault. You're going to spoil the whole manhunt, he shouts angrily. How many days are you going to delay us? Do you know how much extra money we had to spend because you got captured in Marigold? This is the taxpayer's gold and it's meant to be used responsibly, but you don't care about any of that, do you? In the name of the old king, we're just fortunate that boarding here is free. Otherwise, you'd have bankrupted the venture and indebted the township. Red-faced, he stomps away and commences to pace and heave like a fire-breathing salamander, white clouds of steam streaming from his nostrils into the cold pre-dawn air. Back and forth and back and forth he crosses in front of the copper statue before finally deciding to confront me again. Gently as he can, he asks, How long will you need? Verva interjects, The wound isn't serious, but you should rest for two days at least. You lost too much blood too quickly. I ask Broken to dig a crown pellet out of her pack, turn to Grant and tell him, I'm sorry to have been a burden, you're right. What I did was stupid, so let's not waste any more time because of me. I take the dried, crushed mushroom and stick it under my tongue. If you're ready, we should head out now before those immaculate bastards are roving the streets. The constable and apothecary agree, and with me we outvote the women three to two, and so begin hobbling across the bridge toward North Cynic. The view is more beautiful than I imagined it would be. We might have missed it if we'd been walking faster, dawn breaking opposite the vast ocean expanse, bringing to life the rippling surface, the blue-black depths, glimmering turquoise waves fringed with whitewash as they smash against rocks, sandbars, and the outpour from the mouth of the river deep. I'm not sure if it's the crown or the scene, but for those few moments cresting the peak of the bridge, I'm happy just to be alive. I thank Virva and Nostius and tell Broken how sorry I am for not listening to her, and she says it's all right so long as I promise to never do anything like that again. But where we're going, such a promise is impossible. We exit the bridge, 
pass another pair of statues, same as the ones before. Old men dressed in billowing coats, one clutching scales and a net of fish, the other carrying a carpenter's compass and ruler. Whoever molded their faces made them stern, dispassionate, and unblinking as they gazed over their city. A pair of austere businessmen and scholars, they seem so much a mismatch for the emotional, tumultuous people who've come after them. Mayhap it was the prosperity they brought that made the people this way. Or maybe it's contact with those crazies across the ocean. Or maybe, I ponder, it has something to do with the third founding councilman. He's utterly missing representation, nor do any monuments or murals depict slaves, only free and unchanged fae. Strange for a city built on gremlin labor. Though perhaps not if they think they're hobs. That's the bigger mystery. How such an advanced city doesn't understand the basics of transmogrification. And maybe that's no accident, I realize, seeing the sheer number of foreigners interposed with citizens. Half of North Cynic is identical shades of lavender cloaks and bare-chested elves. The other half are local shopkeeps. It's a forest of signs, banners, lanterns, and awnings. The first two floors of every single building are packed with customers purchasing services and goods from men and women who look ancient by comparison to the Immaculate and the Taskmaster and the clerks at the Wayhouse. Each and every one has on one of those orange civil service vests and a death wand at his hip. Small bore and single-barreled but longer than the enforcers. Less likely to kill, more likely to penetrate and leave a clean wound. Just the opposite of the escorts interspersed among the foreign traders. Theirs are long, staff-model wands with barrels broad enough to load shot and affixed with bayonets the length of swords. From where we're wading through the thickening crowd, I count half a dozen mounted blades between those escorts on the ground and those on the suspended walkways. Three layers overhead, the wealthiest of cynic citizens are shuffling out of their apartments and into tavern common rooms for breakfast. The smell of bacon and sausage intermixes with the perfumes of the people below. I don't notice the presence of gremlins until we hit the northern trade quarter, the architectural mirror of the old town center. The furry little monsters are easy to spot against a background of brick and wattle and daub, especially in their silly outfits. Unlike the naked variety we've interacted with thus far, these gremlins are dressed in orange coats and caps, not unlike Grant's and Broken's. Glancing back, I see them tucked into alcoves and on miniature balconies jutting out from shopfront windows, shoe shines, mercurial hatters, fruit vendors, package couriers, and street sweeps. There are so many of them that I can't help but mull over the hell that would break loose if the Neverlanders knew how these slaves came to be made, assuming they don't already. Maybe they don't feel any kinship with them once they've been transmogrified. It fits with what I know of fairy kind, fickle and cruel. We take a couple turns through narrow alleys shadowed by overhangs, no walkways, so that a slot of steel-gray sky shows above. I'm beginning to question if Grant knows where we're going though that might be my nerves. The trade quarter is just a cleaner version of where the immaculate lurk-like predators possessed by the scent of blood. But there are no black stains on these brick-paved streets, and the constable seems confident reading the map the evening clerk drew for him. One last turn through a surprisingly empty alley dumps us onto the main streets before an enormous banner which reads SCS Death Wand Outlet, then in smaller text, for civilian purchase, munitions, and repair. An awning below the banner spans the entire street in front of the weapons dealer. 
The only entrance is a thick slab of patinaed copper with half a dozen heavy locking mechanisms, and I'm sure there's a crossbeam on the other side for good measure. A bit overkill, I think, that is, until I notice the clientele posturing around the caged sales window. They're immaculate, all nine of them. A sparse crowd, not a single civil servant or foreigner in sight, likely by intent. If I didn't feel so stupid and guilty for almost getting myself killed, I'd avoid these fools as well, but not Grant. He leads us straight through the crowd. Each young man grabs for his weapon, mostly old model staves with flint hammers and flash pans, sword-style bayonets suspended in sheaths between their legs. Grant doesn't flinch, nor does Nostius, and the rest of us try not to look them in the eyes as the constable waits his turn to negotiate through the window. There's only one man in line ahead of us, immaculate like the others, though he's noticeably older and the only one with a newer model weapon, a long single-barrel rod wand like the shop keeps had on throughout the rest of North Cynic. Only his look's different. It's been tampered with. The civil service inscription is filed off, and the whole of the steel is colored black-blue. That seems to be what he and the orange-vested wand dealer behind the caged window are arguing over. But I got the money right here, the old immaculate whinges. How is it you telling me you can't lighten the trigger and put on a bayonet? I know for a fact it'd take your bugbears less than five minutes. No, less than two, the dealer grumbles. He's an old man, older than the fool making a scene in front of us, and he's the kind that age has hardened rather than softened. His face is like tree bark, gnarled and stiff, and his eyes like an oak unmoved by the Immaculate's emotions. I told you already that wand's invalid. We don't work on anything without an imprint. Could be stolen or compromised. You saying I stole my wand? The younger of the two men explodes, throwing emphatic gestures and making the rest of his crew tense. A relief, really. It takes the attention off us. The fool yammers on, Look here, cynic civic dick sucker. I'm paying you four, count them. Four marigold golden mint coins. That's a fat stack of silver, son, so you better stop playing around with Huey Deadman. I got a duel this afternoon, so your little bears better get this shit done. Grant steps up to the window beside the fool. You said you're finished with these men? I believe I'm next. My name is Grant, Constable and Marshal of Township South. My militiamen and I have traveled far on official business to acquire some of your city's more advanced weapons. Who the fuck are you? blurts the Immaculate. The wand dealer ignores him and answers Grant. An official? You sure, boy? Never heard of South before. But I suppose if your gold is good, it doesn't make any difference. How many wands were you looking to purchase? We've got a full stock of brass cap rod and staff models. Official. Official. This fool looks like a little boy in a bugbear suit. You hear that, men? This fool thinks he's the big bad constable of the South. Well, there ain't no place south of here. And I know you damn sure ain't constable and cynic. Those are all single barrel, correct? Asks Grant, ignoring the immaculate. I've seen some of your civil servants armed with two-shot designs. Sorry, stranger, but those aren't for sale to civilians. Cynic civil service issue only. Then there's no problem. I'm not a civilian, I'm a constable. The wand dealer sighs. Look, stranger, even if what you say is true, which I'm not convinced it is, mind you. You couldn't afford to outfit even just the lot of you with enforcers. If it's money that's the issue, I still don't see the problem. Township South is willing to pay up to 500 gold in installments with a maximum interest of 1%, excluding taxes, to outfit its constabulary as well as myself and my militia. 
Certainly this is in both of our best interests to... Grant goes silent at the cocking of a death wand's hammer. The old immaculate has the constable at wand point, a big smirk on his lips as he says, Five fucking hundred? Did I hear that right? You lying bugbear-looking son of a bitch. Coming into my city like you own the place. Township South, what kind of gremlin shit is that? And you say you're a constable? Then prove it, motherfucker. On your fucking honor, me and you, right here, right now. Grant stares and unblinking answers. I decline, go challenge someone else. The fuck you mean you decline, you a fucking coward, is that it, huh? It means I do not consent to fight with you, which means if you do not remove your weapon from my person, I can and will alert the local authorities to your criminal actions, those being intimidation, coercion, incitement to violence, and disturbance of the peace, along with whatever other local laws you've infracted upon, Huey Deadman. That is your name, correct? I want to make sure my report is accurate. The Immaculate pulls the trigger. No words. Just a bleeding ego and jerk of the hand that would have sent the shot flying off into one of his companions if the wand wasn't an inch from Grant's face. The hammer falls, released from the tension of the steel springs coiled inside the mechanism, not unlike the envy and hate pent within the useless youth of Cynic, likewise released at the flick of a finger. Yet the constable doesn't blink. His belief in the old king's law makes him stalwart even in the face of sudden death. So when the wand never goes off, the hammer stopped by the back of Nostius's hand wrapped tight over the weapon's lock. It's only Grant standing composed and dominant, only the alchemist speaking. He starts, open magnum opus, breathe bedlam over thus, thou Ouroboros, from Ferris Petrum, Enantiodromia, reconstitution. The Immaculate wrenches his death wand free from Nostius's grip just as the alchemist finishes his incantation. I don't think anyone else realizes what just happened except Broken, perhaps, but I don't have the chance to ask if she saw the phantom hands ring around the wand barrel like it was a washcloth. The offended party is already up in arms, his posse raising their muzzles, finger pulls away from filling me and my friends full of holes. Then the apothecary bellows, I accept your challenge. The whole crew pauses, looks to their leader to see whether they should shoot or stand down. One of them even asks, what do you want us to do, Huey? He looks to his men, then back to Nastius, pale, pock-faced, greasy-haired, and armed with a crossbow. This is a smart move on the alchemist's part. There was no way the Immaculate would refuse after being made a fool in view of his crew and the semicircle of onlookers gathering at the end of the street. He walks out from under the awning into the slot of open skylight. Nastius follows. You asked for this, outsider? Would have been happy just blasting your boss's head off. He glances to his opponent's weapon, shakes his head, then chuckles to one of his men. Connie, let this fool borrow your wand. I don't want people saying dead man's a bitch because he killed a man with a fucking crossbow. Nastius pulls out his goat's foot and starts loading a quarrel. Keep your cynic piece of shit. Now are we doing this or what? You really want to die, huh? The Immaculate cocks the hammer, lines his sights. Nastius doesn't even level his bow, just raises his head and says, Take your best shot. And so the fool pulls the trigger, and his death wand explodes in a cloud of fire and smoke and fingers dismembered by shrapnel of steel and transmuted stone, like slag in a sword blade. Deadman is left pointing an accusation with a ruddy stump, with lacerations as deep as the lines on his face, wrung out like a cloth so wrinkled in shock is he as Nastius looses a bolt. The quarrel flies with a satisfying twang and a thud when it punches a hole in the dead man's heart. That's impossible, the wand dealer mumbles. 
Nastius clunks over and extracts his mithril-headed bolt, inspects it for deformation, then wipes it on the slain Immaculate's clothing before returning it to his belt quiver. He pays no mind to the men watching and waiting, debating silently with frightened eyes whether to open fire or to flee for South Cynic. Verva notices their panic as well and takes advantage. She commands, If you don't want that to happen to you as well, I suggest you make yourselves scarce or else suffer the wrath of the township South Pyromancers. The Immaculate scatter, leaving their leader's corpse for the gremlins. Grant resumes his conversation. As I was saying, South can afford 500 gold in weapons for our militia and constabulary. Yeah, wait here a second, replies the dealer, then he disappears from the window for a few minutes. We wait in silence. The crowd at the end of the street is talking enough about what they saw. We don't want to add any more fuel to the wildfire, not after Marigold. And I think Grant's worried about news of us getting to Glassboro before we get there. That's something I don't want to think about, going against trained men with death wands better than the Immaculate have. We're going to need a plan. But just now the dealer comes back out and this time his balding head pokes out the green slab copper door. Boss wants to speak to you about the deal, says you're invited to his office, a rare thing I recommend you don't keep him waiting. We don't. We're all eager to get off the street and out of Cynic before there's another incident. So when Grant accepts the sudden summons, we follow him inside without a second's hesitation. It never occurs to me that we might be making a mistake until the metallic clunk of six locks sounds from behind us. I squash the thought. It's just nerves from my time in Marigold's dungeon. Of course they'd lock the door with what sprawled before us. The first floor is like a warehouse filled to capacity with workbenches and gremlins and the tinging of steel, the filing of metal, and the sanding of wooden stocks and wand grips. Custom jobs, all of them, with labels and documents to tell the parts apart. All very orderly, more so even than Grant's office. And what's more, these orange-coated gremlins aren't mutilated like the others. They work deftly with long, claw-like fingers, examine closely with unsown eyes, listen carefully for impurities in the barrels with cat-like ears unsheared from their furry heads. Even their teeth have been left intact. So these are Cynic's famous gremlin engineers, says Nastius, absent-mindedly mesmerized by the skill of the slave workers. The wand dealer responds, There's more of them up the stairs. That's not where you're going, though. Boss's office is down in the basement. He gestures toward a door at the back of the room flanked by a pair of enforcers dressed and armed like Taskmaster Logan. Only their wands have one barrel, not two, and a strange steel cylinder mounted in front of the hammer. The guards know to let you in, just don't do anything stupid while you're down there. We won't, Grant promises, and I make Broken promise me the same thing before we cross the outlet. Like the dealer said, the guards let us in, though they're not so friendly as to be good for conversation. Nastius tries asking one about the design of his weapon and receives a threat for it before being told to hand over his crossbow. They take the rest of our weapons as well, and our packs, and they search our pockets for anything dangerous, and only then are we allowed down the stairwell. For the second time, the door clunks behind us, and we're left to traverse the well ourselves. It's an arduous journey for an injured troglodyte. The steps are small, almost child-sized, and the lighting dimmer the deeper we go, and the well goes deep. I think I've counted sixteen flights by the time we hit the landing where it is utterly dark. Are we in the right place? Perhaps we've gone too far, Verva asks. A voice from the shadows answers, small, nasty, and scratchy. 
You're right where I want you, so unless you'd rather my kith fill you with lead, I advise you stay put. Twenty-some death wand hammers cock in unison while in each corner, oil lanterns flicker to life. The chamber illuminates. Welcome to my office, says an ancient gray and fluffy gremlin dressed in the same orange coat and cap we saw outside, only his are different. They've got gold tasseled pads on the shoulders, and threaded on the hat is a badge imprinted marshal. I am Councilman Bradwer, he introduces himself, and these are my civil servants. He announces the gremlin firing lines either side of his desk, two dozen double-barreled enforcers trained on us, the councilman himself aiming a wand, huge in his little claw-like hand, specifically at Nostius. We'll start with you, Guild Rat. I've been informed that you sabotaged one of my death wands just a few moments ago. Excuse me, councilman, Grant interjects as if nothing's unusual. But under what statute are we being detained? By the old king's law? A spot on the stairs explodes behind us, a spot about level with the constable's head. Then through the fire and smoke and the thundering echo we hear the wand cock again. Wait your turn, human. The rat and I were speaking. But the law... Another slug shatters on the stairs, dead level and an inch nearer in the direction of Grant's face. The constable glares but keeps his mouth shut. He doesn't have another inch to spare for another warning shot, nor do my ears for that matter. They're ringing so loudly I can barely make out Nostius gasping. Now it all makes sense! That's why the Machinist Guild couldn't ever reverse engineer a cynic weapon, cause we never had a damned gremlin councilman to tell us how to do it. Ingenious. Better than anything or anyone to come out of New Rhyme, that shithole. But I digress, the gremlin recocks the hammer. You were just about to tell me how you sabotaged one of my wands. The alchemist's dark eyes squint through the residual smoke. He licks his lips, answers, If I tell you, will you explain how the cylinder lock on your death wand works? How many rounds does that hold, anyway? Five? What is wrong with you people? Who acts like this when he's being interrogated? We eat a lot of mushrooms, Broken blurts out. The councilman hangs and shakes his furry gremlin head, sighs, then lifts it again and says, Not on your life, rat. Am I explaining how anything works? Wouldn't matter even if you locked me in one of Ogier's cells, though that seems more your situation at the moment. Oh, before I forget, it loads six cartridges, not five. Now answer my damn question before I shoot Mr. Lawman here for staring at me wrong. Nostius shrugs. You won't believe me. Try me, Guild Rat. I transmuted the steel into its component elements, took out the temper and turned it into a hunk of iron with big fat deposits of slag. Occult magic? Bradward glares crookedly from Nostius to Grant. And this one wants to complain to me about legal statutes? That's the most illegal shit there is. Not under the old king's law, the constable starts, but the gremlin cuts him off. Yes, under the shadowed bastard's law. Did the world just forget what shit was like before Gerard's coup d'etat? I guess it's been a few hundred years. That's beside the point. How did you even learn about the occult in the first place? We read a lot of books, Broken blurts again. The councilman decocks his death wand, sets it on his desk, and exhales in relief, tells his gremlin guards to stand down. Magic, huh? I guess I'll have to remind Cynic that the practice is forbidden. He turns to one of his guards. Go tell who's ever working the shop. Our story is that the wand blew because the Immaculate tampered with it and overloaded the powder. And let the doormen know not to blast their heads off. So long as this doesn't happen again, these fools will be receiving a pardon. His slashed, cat-like eyes fall right on the constable. 
You hear that, Mr. Lawman? A pardon because what you and your kith did was illegal. Grant bows and answers with a stiffness in his voice, rigid even for himself. Thank you, Councilman Bradwer. I will reread Township South's legal records to clarify punishable offenses of Faycraft once we're finished with our business at present. That is, we wish to purchase... Yeah, yeah, they already gave me the whole spiel. The Grey Gremlin pushes himself from his desk and stands no taller than Broken had months ago. He turns his back but gestures for us to follow him into a room connected at the opposite end of the chamber. Come on into my private workshop and we can talk business. And so we cross the small office. It's nicely furnished, I notice, now that I'm looking at it instead of down the barrels of two dozen wands. The floor is carved cavern stone, though covering most of it is a plush bed of furs from an animal I've never seen, smelt, or felt before, like if a puma was rolled in flowers and skinned. Likewise, the desk is foreign wood, almost amber in color, and with a grain like running water across its surface. The same pattern is cast into the back of Bradwer's crystal amber chair, like a rippling river shimmering bright and askew in the lantern light. It makes me curious what kind of fairy the councilman had been before his transmogrification. The inkpot on his desk is in the shape of an undine clutching a cauldron, but the cup of copper pens look more like sylphs. The heaps of documents don't reveal any clues either though the way they're piled in perfectly ordered stacks teaches me that the gremlin's disposition is more human, or should I say, less fey, than his appearance. The same can be said for the councilman's workshop. Everything in this room is a feat of engineering. Modal workbenches on tracks with built-in clamps, compartments, and height adjustment. Winch-controlled suspension systems for three-dimensional access to heavier projects. An underground forge outfitted with flue pipes and a combustion-powered auto-hammer. Not to mention the multitudinous projects all in varying states of completion or repair. Most of them seem to be experimental weapons, mainly wands of different sizes. Though there are some that I don't know what they are. Bradwer catches me gawking at the big one a little too long and warns us. You can look, but don't touch anything. The last time I let a bunch of humans in here, one of the idiots blew a hole in his foot. They paid well for their wands, though. Better than five hundred gold? Grant presses the gremlin. I'm not at liberty to discuss. Part of the contract, but you know how that goes, right, Mr. Lawman? It means the only one allowed to ask questions is me. Let's start with an easy one. Why do you want so many wands? To outfit my constabulary. We've had rapid population growth the past few months, and it's showing no sign of slowing. We need something with more authority than my father's old wand and a handful of partisans. How many men are in your outfit? Eighteen, though I'd like to purchase brass cap staff models for twenty men. Bradwer removes his cap and aims his ears ahead, constricts his pupils till they're razor thin like he's trying to see underneath Grant's skin. You could get that for less than two hundred. The rest is for us. And what in the king's name do you need weapons like that for? We're on a manhunt for a fugitive, Dr. Alan Edgar. The gremlin's eyes go wide. That son of a bitch is still alive? Grant nods. He's holed up in the Crystal Palace in Glassboro. As I'm sure you're aware, they're very well armed. And given the lawless state of the central provinces, even a warrant won't get us inside. That's why we need your weapons, to return law and order to the island. You should have said something sooner, answers Bradwer taking us all by surprise, until I realize. That's right. I forgot the doctor was only ever in South because he was run out of Cynic. 
Whatever he did, the councilman doesn't say, but mere mention of the name changes the course of conversation. We fill Bradwer in on what we know so far, the poisonings in town, and what broken saw of the crown-addicted royals. By the end, the gremlin is grinning and nodding along, standing beside a monstrous hunk of steel, suspended on chains, and imprinted with the name Kingmaker. Looks like we have a deal, Constable.